This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 13th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The Indian Child Welfare Act is supposed to make it difficult for the government to break up Native American families. So what happens when the parents and the Native American tribes differ over a child's future? Cato's Walter Olson comments on a case now before the Fifth Circuit and its implications for tribal sovereignty and child welfare in general. The Indian Child Welfare Act is now more than 40 years old. What was the problem that it was supposed to solve? States had had and used uh, and abused power over uh, the uh, Indian families within their borders. In particular, they had uh, aggressive uh, child welfare systems that would come in and uh, take children away from Indian families that might be struggling, might be somewhat functional, uh, uh, on the grounds that they were not behaving as the state thought they should behave. And this is, of course, not just a problem that Indian families face, but it was certainly one that was felt badly during the era in which a lot of states pursued a kind of ideology of kids are better off than other families. They, they didn't like the way people lived uh, in Indian country. And so there were a lot of genuine horror stories. Uh, so Congress was reacting against something real. How does the Indian Child Welfare Act deal differently with parents who are Native American than the laws of the United States with respect to adoption and that sort of thing? Well, there are the cases that are not so controversial in which the child is born in Indian country and both of his or her parents are Indian. And it alters uh, the way states have to handle those cases. It gives tribes more of a voice in it. Uh, that's the less controversial side of the act. The more controversial side is children often uh, who have never physically been anywhere near Indian country, who may have rather than two Indian parents, one parent who is perhaps lightly attached, you know, has never lived on the reservation but has a tribal membership, and the other parent may be, who knows, you know, Irish American or Asian American. And that child, perhaps in uh, New York City or Boston, uh, get swept into the act under a very broad definition saying that you are covered by ICWA uh, if you have an, a parent who is a tribal member and if you are, quote, eligible for tribal membership yourself. Now, that that's a striking definition, not that you are a member of a tribe, but that the tribe would consider you eligible. So in some ways, you can cut ties. You can essentially decide that your identity has nothing to do with uh, your Native American ancestry, and by virtue of a government classification, you can be thrown into uh, this. Unless you have renounced your tribal membership and done so in time, that is exactly what can happen. And in fact, the equal litigation is full of cases in which uh, one parent has uh, rather thin and scanty ties to Indian culture. And uh, ICWA cases are also replete with instances in which that parent or both parents um, would like uh, the child to be placed in an adopt adoptive placement with non-Indians. But one of the startling things about ICWA is that it doesn't matter what the parents say. They, uh, they don't get to decide on an adoptive placement for their kid just because they've agreed with each other. The tribe gets to decide instead. Is the, what's the best case for that? It's, it seems unconscionable on its face, but what's the best case for that? Well, 
Let's get into the legalities a little bit, because it's certainly what the Fifth Circuit is considering in uh, ruling on the constitutionality. Uh, if you see ICWA as a uh, law that is driven by race, and that's intuitively how most people would, then you run right into the problem of the Equal Protection Clause in cases like Rice versus Cayetano, a case involving Native Hawaiians, in which the Supreme Court said loud and clear, uh, uh, the Equal Protection Clause doesn't let the government run around uh, dealing out rights uh, unequally to people because of their uh, race and lineage. So if you treat ICWA as a law that makes racial classifications, then it comes under strict scrutiny and it probably falls. That's what the federal district court uh, agreed when he struck down the, uh, ICWA in the Burkine decision. Now, the other argument which convinced the appeals panel on the Fifth Circuit is no, no, no. This is not a racial classification. It, you know, it just looks like one. It's a political classification because tribes are political entities. They have nothing to do with race or lineage. Um, they are. It's like they're Omaha or they're a county or something, uh, except they're special because there's this long history in which the federal government has complete power over. Indian affairs, whereas it would not over other types of government. So that's their argument is uh, we've only made a political classification here. Uh, this child is eligible to join a political classification. And so uh, reaching out and saying that that political entity has a right to rule on its future um, is no racial classification at all. You mentioned Brekine. That's the case that is sort of nominally at issue here. Um, what are the specific elements of that case? It's a case where a non-Indian couple has been uh, foster parents to a uh, child whom they would now like to adopt. And uh, the posture of the case was uh, they got full consent of both of the child's biological parents, uh, as well as a grandparent, uh, to go forward and uh, ICWA's rules said, no, not enough. You have to uh, turn the entire thing over to the tribe, which will then use ICWA's priority rules to look for, um, if possible, an Indian family that the child is related to. If not, then someone within the same tribe. And if not that, then someone with a completely different Indian tribe who may have entirely different cultural traditions, but who is still preferred uh, over you. Uh, uh, you know, Mr. and Mrs. have raised the kid all its life. And uh, it's worth lingering over this idea of generic Indianness. It's like an Esperanto Indianness, uh, where the other, uh, let's say you're one of these kids who is half Indian, uh, the other side of your family, whether it be Dominican or Black or whatever, has no say whatsoever. Uh, the tribe gets to decide. But it's this preference for generic Indianness where they may send you off to a Florida Indian tribe, you know, so some place that's completely different from either of the places involved in the litigation, um, that first makes a lot of us think that it is a racial classification after all. And secondly, makes us think this law sure was not drawn out with much attention to ch children's actual welfare. Is it? Because we would want, if it were our kid, um, that connection with uh, what the parents had wanted, with what the parent, what the child had grown up with already. Yeah, it's, it's uh, anytime you're dealing with uh, Indian tribes, uh, you get into a lot of weird areas of governance because, and, and what's strangely is that you expect Indian tribes or at least a tribal lands to have 
sovereignty, which is, I put that in scare quotes because it's not real. Uh, states and localities have more uh, to rebut federal uh, reach into their affairs than Indian tribes do. It's full of paradoxes and it's full of legal fictions because uh, depending on who's arguing which side of which controversy, an Indian tribe can seem to be as sovereign as if it were France or Japan, or it can be viewed as the the ward and it's straight, you know, it's a comic book kind of term like, you know, Robin Ward of Batman, but uh, the uh, helpless wards of the federal government that can't decide anything on their own and can't, for example, uh, uh, sign away land a uh, hundred years ago because they were in uh, like in, they hadn't reached an age of majority or something. So in between you have uh, a great deal of confusion and a great deal of games playing about um, are we a sovereignty? Are we a dependent body? Uh, are we just like a state? Are we nothing like a state? And uh, that uh, struggle, uh, it goes on against the background of the federal government having defined itself as uh, the friend and ally of the Indians against the state governments. And there's a lot of history that makes that you know, kind of plausible, that that is the way that it worked for a long time. Uh, on the other hand, times change. And uh, the idea that the state is always to be distrusted and to be ousted from power uh, doesn't always make as much sense now. Sometimes the federal government is the distant one. What are the are there broader implications here for tribal sovereignty? I think there are some broader implications. The Indian tribes have suffered a lot of reverses in areas like uh, um, the land claim litigation that went on for thirty years and to some extent is still going on. Uh, they would like to get a solid win on something where they believe that uh, they've got a lot of. Uh, supporters, for example, the child welfare establishment uh, generally has sided with ICWA, even though the outcomes uh, of ICWA are often rather unattractive. The they, children remain in uh, neglectful homes more often, probably, uh, uh, if the uh, tribes haven't gotten it together, and, and, and tribes vary greatly as far as how, how efficient they are. But the other issues come up that are interesting. There is one really unrelated to this, except it's always fun to compare the principles, which is defamation. Uh, you can't defame a government. So what happens if you talk trash about an Indian tribe? Have you uh, gotten away scot-free because American law does not recognize defamation of a government? Or can you be sued after all because tribes are people? Uh, and there's a case pending right now in which one of the upstate New York tribes was lightly fictionalized and maybe not even very lightly. And there was an implied accusation that it was subject to corruption. And so now there is pending litigation saying, uh, uh, you know, you can't defame an Indian tribe. Well, can you? I mean, again, you get back to this question of, uh, are you talking about the people in it or are you talking about a sovereignty that's very much like a state? When the government wants to take a child out of a home, uh, how does the presumption differ between this law and state laws with respect to uh, child protective services? ICWA inserts several additional requirements before a state can remove a child from an Indian family. Uh, and this includes 
more than just openness to uh, ways of saving the situation, but uh, sort of more active diligence, investing resources in trying to save the uh, relationship. It uh, generally raises the um, uh, hurdles for such removal. And that's very interesting because libertarians were among the first to launch a critique of CPS, Child Protective Services, um, swooping in and taking kids away too readily. I agree that <laughs> those are very interesting potential reforms in many cases. Uh, some of them require uh, expenditure of government money, some of them don't. But the uh, idea that it should be harder for uh, the government to take away kids is a very attractive one. What I'm wondering is why, uh, if this is being recommended uh, and, and imposed by the federal government for Indian families, why isn't there more interest in protecting non-Indian families? Shouldn't everyone uh, have more robust rights against CPS taking away their kids? Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 